there. Thanks for taking the time. I'm Stacey Nonemaker, and this is a Supporters Toolbox. Recently, it has been cold as heck here in the Northeast United States. The kind of cold where I have zero desire to take the dog for our daily, highly anticipated for him, morning walk. But it is a weekday habit that we have established, so much so that when I put on socks, the look in Boomer's eyes tells me there's no turning back. And it's one of those things that I know is good for me, both mentally and physically. So I want to talk about just that. How do we get ourselves or support others to do something that we know we should do but really don't want to do? I have been talking a lot about changing our own behaviors and actions as well as supporting others to do the same. But how do we make that change happen and make it stick? I have talked about creating habits, talked about making things meaningful, talked about shifting mindset, talked about using social capital and connections, all that can be resources to making changes and making them stick. But let us talk about something specific, something called behavioral contracting. Behavioral contracting is a cognitive behavior therapy technique for change. It's usually a written or oral agreement for yourself or between a person and someone else. The contract usually specifies expectations, plans, and or contingency for the behaviors to be changed. The foundation of behavioral contracts is based on the principles of operant psychology, based on the ABC approach. A, to identify and modify antecedents or triggers to the behavior or things that happen before the behavior. B, to change the target behavior. And C, to look at the consequences or reinforcers that shape and maintain behaviors. Let's talk about why we could use something like a behavioral contract. Well, written documents called contracts are appearing with increasing frequency in clinical practice and the medical literature for things like managing, air quotes, resistant patients, opioid contracts, suicide prevention contracts, and things like healthy living contracts. Through this research, behavioral contracts have many different intents. I think the most applicable to the work we do is what some call the Ulysses contracts, where the contracts help people hold themselves to better practices by bolstering their willpower through a written commitment. Ulysses in Homer's Odyssey had his men tie him to the ship's mast so he could not respond to the siren song. I I don't know. I didn't make that up. Well, when I spoke to my team, who has a lot of collective years of clinical experience about behavioral contracting, a common theme was that contracts need to be individualized to the person and circumstances, focusing on realistic and meaningful goals that account for flexibility with adaptations and supports when needed. Behavioral contracting should never be about establishing control or keeping something from someone, but more about helping someone work through those things they may not want to do, but know they should do. For example, many people we support, like us, know how important it is to be healthy, but may need that extra push, if you will, to get there. 
We can break that down into seven steps that two behavioral scientists, Rory Gallagher and Owen Service talk about. This process can drive behavioral contracting. First, you wanna set a concrete and realistic goal. And then second, set up a plan for how you will reach that goal. So let's go back to the example of being healthy. Let's say that Mindy knows that she should eat healthier, but struggles to do so. Can any of you relate here? Well, what you can do is you can work with Mindy, starting small, to make a goal to eat more fruits and vegetables. The plan could include how many, how often, what she'll buy at the store every week. You get the picture. And after you have that clear goal and plan, step three is to make a commitment. That may be something as simple as just writing it down, having a literal contract. Remember, make it individualized. The fourth step is to set up a reward. Who doesn't love a reward? And how many of us have said things like, let me finish writing this podcast and then I will pour myself a glass of wine. Wait, maybe that's just me. Anyway, the fifth step is for the person to share the goal with others, putting in a piece of accountability. Saying it out loud makes it so, right? As a supporter, that may be you, or it may be someone that the person wants to impress or have them think highly of them. Social pressure is a wonderful thing. The sixth step is to be open to and receive feedback finding out how you're doing. This may be through keeping track of behavior. Like in Mindy's case, she could keep a paper on the fridge where she could record when she eats veggies or fruit, have like a crude visual data that tells her how she's doing. I'm a geek and I think that this could be the fun part. Finding ways to illustrate how you're doing, to motivate you. And I can go on and on here, but I won't. I'll say that for another day. And the final step is to make it stick. Once you meet your goal, especially one like Mindy's, how are you going to keep this behavioral momentum going? I think this comes back to making a realistic and meaningful goal in the first place. But I also acknowledge that the plan needs to have some Things baked in, like soliciting a roommate or a peer to eat healthier with Mindy. We all make behavioral contracts with ourselves, whether it's to exercise more, read more, complain less, eat out less. But behavioral contracting formalizes those changes we want to see. And as a supporter, we can follow this process and help someone contract with themselves or others if they want to do those things that they may not want to do, but know they should. Now, excuse me while I go have that glass of wine. Again, thanks for taking the time. I know you're busy. Hoping you took one thing away that can make today a better day for the person you support. Bye now. Bye.